Well, no, just because this is a, I mean, this, it's an election year. This is going to be a big thing in the U.S. And presumably, I, I don't know, I'm just guessing there mm-hmm. may be like one or two news stories marginally yeah. related to uh, the two. election over the course of this year. There might, there might even be like one or two just inflammatory statements made. So I actually thought about this the other day. Um, and I, I, my thinking was, hey, we do this podcast so it goes up on Tuesdays. The U.S. votes in, on a Tuesday. So mm-hmm. if next November we wanted to talk about <laughs> politics, we could have a politics special. <laughs> okay. And it would go up on election day. And that, well, was, that was the only thought I'd ever had about of it. Of course, now we're the media, mm-hmm. though. This is part of the problem. Like, so we we have to if we're gonna exert political influence, we've got we we're like a year late. We got to catch up. We got to be all political and stuff. <laughs> we have to, we have to talk about exclusively nothing but politics. Exactly for the rest of 2016 or until November, and then we can go back and see checking in how CEO SpaceX is doing. Right. Unless Elon Musk goes and endorses a candidate or something. Ooh. We can talk about that. Well, there we go. Actually, sure. There we go. If Elon, well, no, no, no sorry, not endorses again. I thought you were going to say if he runs. Sure. I mean, <laughs> I think we'd all vote for Elon Musk if he ran. I think I we'd have, vote I for no like idea. any position. Really? You, no you don't know if you'd vote for Elon Musk? I don't. I don't know. Uh, I would. I mean, it'd be kind of like voting for. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he could ever win. To be honest, I mean, maybe I'd have to see his polling data. The thing I, is, I don't get, know. I don't know what his policies are aside from space is awesome. I am perfectly willing and happy to talk about talking about politics, actually, <laughs> so, which we are already doing. So therefore, now I can clarify to say I'm perfectly willing to talk about politics. I am very open with my political stances um, mm. and discussions, and I'm really happy to talk to anyone about politics. So if you would like to talk to me about politics, Kevin, then I will happily respond. Well, here's the thing. I don't know that I have anything to say about politics. I'm just more interested in in kind of the idea of, um, I've noticed that it, it feels like there are an awful lot of issues that are very, very polarizing. Yeah. And I noticed this when I was making YouTube videos. I noticed this when, you know, when I tweet things out or whatever, is that I find myself deliberately censoring myself um, in expressing a viewpoint on an awful lot of different things just mm-hmm. because I'm afraid that not necessarily that I'm going to lose people that, that disagree with me, but that I'm going to uh, offend people accidentally through lack of imagination or on, of, on my own part, through just not mm-hmm. understanding the ways that, that something could be misinterpreted or perhaps legitimately interpreted based on different experiences or things like that. And so there's like this whole, and it seems to be growing. There's this whole range of things from just, I don't, all right, I just, I, this is an off, off, uh, off limits topic to, to discuss anymore. I don't feel like most people are that way. If I look at my Facebook feed, I think people are pretty cool talking about politics. I mean, it used yeah. to be the case that it was just kind of general, you know, the, the general manners is that you never talk about religion. You never talk about politics. You know, you would yeah. talk about them perhaps privately with your family or with very close friends, but that's ne- you know it's not the subject for public discourse. That you know, it's it's just it's impolite, and I don't think that's uh, held to be true anymore. 
Yeah, certainly not for politics. Um, and I think politics drags a lot of religion into it nowadays. And I think that's kind of unfortunate um, because I, personally, I, I'm a very much a believer in the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. um, but on the politics side of things, I, I think that a good discussion in society about politics is a good thing. And I'm, I'm sort of glad that we've moved away from, you know, having it be a taboo subject to be something that is generally talked about on a fairly frequent basis. Um, that being said, I'm not a super huge fan of the over-medialization of politics. <laughs> um, like the 24-hour news networks and such, like CNN and Fox and MSNBC and stuff, who literally just talk about politics 24-7, are just roaring to polarize and bring people on from all all facets of life to try to get like interesting and weird responses so they can get ratings not a fan of that but like the discussion of politics in general on sites like twitter and like facebook and stuff like that can be good um but i i actually i'm not super certain that they're much better so I am a fan of talking about politics in general, mm -hmm. but I'm not certain that the methods and the ways that they get talked about nowadays are particularly useful, I, would, I, I suppose. I think I would go as far to say that I don't think that, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether or not there should be a taboo or whether it should be considered impolite, but I don't think the discussions of things like politics and religion um, are particularly helpful in public forums. Yeah, I mean, religion. Not that, not that, not that you're you, like you're perfectly yeah. free to to tweet out or or throw stuff on your Facebook wall about you know wow your Facebook wall that was that was an old thing to say. Um, <laughs> I mean, you still have a Facebook wall, <laughs> Do you, don't you? Is it a wall? The wall, the wall still exists. Okay, it's still a, that's still an in use term. <laughs> we may I yeah, I don't think it's an in use term. It may still technically be the wall, but I don't know. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily conducive because I think. Um, you know, I, I, the, there's the kind of the trope at this point of people having to deal with their racist relatives posting stuff on Facebook or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's just kind of a, this is, this is what everybody's experience is, is that they're discovering that great aunt Kathy, you know, supports something that they don't support. And then they get into an argument with their great aunt Kathy over, over Facebook and things like that. Um, I don't think that, I think that uh, on the one hand, yes, if you're, if you're, talking about issues and trying to figure out, you know, how we go about solving real problems, then that's great. I don't think mm -hmm. that, but there is a cost. I mean, there is a, not a cost, but there is a risk that when you engage with someone um, on a particularly, uh, on a possibly contentious topic, that you damage an otherwise healthy relationship with that person. And yeah. I feel like I there's, I, I'm much happier Having like, because I know that I have plenty of friends with whom I disagree very strongly on particular issues. I'm much happier simply not broaching those topics, so long as they're comfortable doing the same. Provided that you know, obviously, I'm not going to go ahead and you know hang out with Hitler because he's really good at uh, you know playing Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> this is an example. All right, <laughs> uh, you know. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You know, there's a there's an extent to which people's policies can't be ignored, but I think when people have policies that aren't that don't that you may disagree with but don't have a significant impact, that keeping those kind of off of the table for a particular discussion um is is kind of healthy for both parties and and you can perhaps deprive yourself 
of really good relationships with people that you disagree with because you get stuck in a particular issue. And I don't feel like, and I think especially on public things, uh, kind of Twitter being probably the most public um, yeah. of platforms, it's very easy to uh, not, you know, e- even when you tag someone, you're, you're not directing, uh, you, you know, you, you're, you're shouting in their general direction and then anyone else can decide to to sort of engage with that. And there's a real risk of, uh, losing, losing potential relationships and helpful discussions with people on perhaps different topics on which you can actually come to some sort of consensus or at least have a reasonable discussion. And so I don't know. I feel like the the don't talk about politics thing may have been a good idea at some point. Okay. I, I will grant you that there are certainly topics where that's true. And I think the realm of where that holds true and that holds true across basically all of the religious topics and some political topics is that morals. So when you try to discuss like morality issues with people, Mm -hmm. you you're much more apt to strike significant chords with them um, and engage a much more visceral response. So if you're talking about, you know, topics like, you know, should there be religion in schools or should, you know, should it be presented, you know, a and B and, you know, options. And should it be, uh, what, what's the deal with abortion and all that type of stuff. You're going to really hit chords with people who, you know, have a moral, moral compass that points different directions. Right. So people are going to believe different things. Right. Um, and they're going to be very adamant about that because that's going to be some very core part of their being. Whereas if you're debating whether the right way to build a bridge or to build a, you know, a hyperloop train is the way to spend, you know, this year's fiscal budget. You know, <laughs> that's not really gonna, it, you know, well, elicit any yeah, sort of Especially discussing with people who have no impact on, on that policy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, yeah. It's not, it's, if, if my, my great aunt Sally thinks that it would be appropriate for us to build a Keystone pipeline, she's not going to go out and build it. So, if I vehemently oppose it, it's probably just not worth talking about. Like if it's yeah. going to if it's going to sever sever uh, potentially good discussions, let's just let's just not bring it up then. Um, you know, obviously, yes. If she's if she's going out there and, and and building the pipeline herself, then maybe I do have a responsibility to speak up and say, I, you know, I really think you should knock it off. Um, yeah. By the way, the pipeline. I have no idea. Like, I'm not informed enough about it to have any sort of opinion. It was just sort of a, an example. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. I'm not committing myself to a particular viewpoint in that example <laughs> because you have done no research. I, have no I, I haven't. Um, I have. Yeah. I have quite deliberately over the past kind of year or so tried to denewsify and depolitify my life because mm-hmm. it just it, it. I don't think it matters. <laughs> not that it doesn't I, matter. I don't think that my being informed actually helps and i think that you know if it was a choice between doing that and nothing then sure um i would do my best to stay informed but i can be informed about other things where i feel that i can have more of a positive impact i mean i've certainly tried to scale back my particular news intake but i have good circles of friends who i almost talk nothing about uh nothing except politics with um Mm -hmm. and even if there's not just politics it's you know makes up a good portion of our conversations and being informed is a good way of maintaining those particular friendships and <laughs> I, that i value so you know it, it it's it helps and i 
enjoy it in certain circumstances, mm. you know. And again, it, it all depends on the issue. Like, I, having issues about taxes is a great a great debate that I like to have with a particular friend. <laughs> I mean, and I'd also, I think I'd have quite some fun. I've never found anyone who has a different viewpoint than me, but the whole oh, should... Oh, there's a red it, flag it's a, right it's an, there. It's an echo chamber. I know, it's an <laughs> echo chamber problem. Um, but I, I don't have a friend who I've talked to who doesn't think that cell phone encryption isn't a good thing and that the government should have access to all of their files <laughs> when they want it. Like, I haven't found anyone that I have friends with to talk about that issue. I, I really kind of would, because I think debating that type of stuff helps you think through your own arguments. So I'm going to, I'm going to say this out loud, but I, I want, I want to preface it by saying that I think this is a very condescending attitude that I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that is that I think that to kind of be a, a counterpoint to what I said before, there is a, the, when when you were talking about people have kind of clinging to their uh, beliefs, particularly with regard to morality, mm-hmm. um, and how that you know kind of makes up a core part of their being, I I initially agreed with you, but I I try and think about myself, and I try and think I my goal as a person, as a thinking person with opinions, is to have very very strong opinions but to hold them very loosely and not identify with them. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So yeah. I will, I will very strongly argue uh, about the benefits and importance of encryption. Mm-hmm. But if you, if, if I, if, if you for some reason just said that, you know, this is absolutely necessary and we need to be able to decrypt and backdoor into everything. And there's, and you wanted to argue vehemently and you wanted to call, that opinion completely stupid. Heck, if you wanted to call me stupid, I'd probably be fine with that too. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't take that necessarily as a personal offense. Um, and and similarly, if if people disagreed with my views on religion or abortion or kind of any of these really hot button issues, I don't personally. I I hold my opinions and I I hold them very strongly and I will argue very long <laughs> for a very long yeah. time and very forcefully. But at the same time, if if you manage to convince me that I'm wrong, it's not going to. I don't feel like you're chipping away at my soul. I don't feel like it's a personal attack when uh, you, uh, you know, when you argue against a point that I may hold. And I feel like my attitude of just not wanting to engage on those hot button issues may be condescending in that it is, it is assuming that the opposing side does not have that same attitude. That okay. perhaps it is inappropriate for me not to attack the opposing side on a particular issue because I am, I guess, treating them with kid gloves in a way. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. Um, and I think this this whole notion of not getting attached to one's beliefs and one's ideas actually translates really well into like the engineering fields and stuff. Like, I you don't want to get attached to your ideas and, you, and your thoughts and you want to be very open to being corrected and, you know, being overwritten if someone has a better argument because... Well, no, 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 don't, don't overstate it. I don't even necessarily think that you want to be, that you want to, that you want to make it easy for someone to convince you that something is better. Well, I no, think not, that you should try very, very, very hard to prove that your position is correct because that, that, that ensures that when you do change your mind... 
that you know you have fought against it as much as possible. You know that if I couldn't figure out a way to refute this, it's probably more reasonable than just, oh, this person who you know has a little bit more experience than me says I'm wrong, so I'm just going to go ahead and switch over and start believing in this. Yeah, but then don't, once you've made that switch over, you can't hold a grudge against the oh, person. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to, you know, basically say, oh, okay, this is, you've clearly made your point, your argument is too foolproof. All right, now I, I'll go along with you. Yep. And and that's the end, that has to be the end of it then, until, of course, you come across someone new who has a different <laughs> opinion. And then to be fair, the whole cycle think, begins again. I think in my case, generally, I will argue, and I've, I've lost friendships this way, that I will argue very strongly against a particular point, and they will argue very strongly, and we reach an impasse, and we go, okay, we're, we're done. And they, they're frustrated with me for not just admitting that they're right. Um, and then huh. I will go off, and I will think about it for a few days, and I'll go, you know what? Yeah, I think they are right. And then I'll start espousing their views. And then they will be very, very furious. Why didn't I just capitulate at the time? (laughs) (laughs) Just took time to digest. Exactly. Yeah, I I generally don't don't flip my views mid-argument. Perhaps I should. But part of it is that I feel like if I, you know, if I'm wrong then I want to be absolutely sure that I'm wrong. I want to force you to convince me beyond any reasonable doubt in my mind that I'm wrong. And so the so I'm very hesitant to actually uh, flip my opinion, at least until after, um, after the discussion has taken place. Yeah, and I think that's very reasonable. Um, people who get upset with that, I think, I don't know. That sounds weird to me, that they would get upset because it took you a little bit of time, but then you eventually agreed with them. Yeah, but not at the time. I agreed with them, like, days later, and, yeah. (laughs) And they just spent all this time arguing. When it turns out I agree with them, well, eh, it's cause and effect right there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, the only point I was just trying to make was that this this, mm, isn't directly associated with politics is is that it, it's in engineering and software engineering is mm. that you will have ideas and you will make things that are you know terrible. perhaps isn't <laughs> yeah that isn't the right way to go about it and that you have to be very open and not personally attached to those ideas so that way you can replace them and not feel like oh i'm the worst person ever or you won't hate the people who you know had that better idea right right that make the implementation twice as fast or whatever (laughs) you just know that you know that the end result is that things worked faster not that oh i was terrible right yeah yeah i don't know i I think particularly in software everything i mean even even looking back at stuff that no one else has challenged uh i can say at least for my entire career everything that i've written more than three months ago is awful <laughs> yeah. And three months yeah. from now, the stuff that I'm writing today will be absolutely terrible as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, past you has died and was terrible. Yes, exactly. Well, let's blame it all on that dude. <laughs> yeah. And then none of this was on our topics list. Why do we have a topics list? We can clearly just talk about whatever we want. Well, yeah, that is kind of the nature of this podcast. So, Marvin Minsky, who um, was one of the foremost experts in AI coming out of MIT um, has unfortunately passed away. Um, and he, he has won what is the most prestigious award in computer science, which is the Tur- Turing 
Award for his work in artificial intelligence. Um, and it's always sad when someone who's won a Turing Award has passed away because it means that like there's less less people thinking about cool things in computers. I don't know. It's it's just he was a very cool he was a cool guy, and I'm sad that he's not thinking of cool things anymore. I knew the name Marvin Minsky. I didn't know a lot of what he had done. I did look on Wikipedia. Apparently, Wikipedia is not particularly kind. They accuse him of having <laughs> caused the AI winter for criticizing neural nets and basically saying this isn't going to pan out. And then everyone went, okay, we're not going to investigate neural nets for a few decades. Yeah, but he also built the first one. <laughs> okay. But still, and he was like, this is not a good idea. Yeah, but he built the first one. <laughs> well, yes. And then prior to this, like he, I could have told you that he was a pioneer of neural networks. I didn't I didn't know that particular fact about <laughs> Well, this is this is because he, I'm I'm the sort of uh, deep researching expert <laughs> that I am. I didn't know he was criticized for like causing a huge holdback of um, the the field by you know perhaps t- downplaying his his own invention um, because he did build I forget what it was called um, but he's widely attributed with writing the first neural network simulator. I if he did then downplay his own invention, I can then sympathize with that and perhaps maybe someone else should have i'm just parroting i don't know okay so i mean obviously it's very sad um i don't know it it is interesting though because it does feel like a lot of i mean to your point though there are a lot of kind of pioneering people in uh in computer science research and it feels like a lot of them are old yeah um or 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 have passed away yeah which I wonder, is that just a matter of the field being very saturated at this point? Um, and so it's just, it's harder for us to notice like, oh, wow, the, you know, it, that perhaps there are millions more um, remarkable visionaries now. And it's just more difficult for us to notice them because they're in fields where, you know, we may not intersect. Or if in some ways, perhaps the advances are, the, the advances that we're making are not as remarkable. They're far more incremental. Right. They're the TikTok of, you know, Intel's low march of CPU modernization. They're the single commits that go in across all the different GitHub pages. And they're the little people who are making small changes to the Linux kernel that, you know, <laughs> slowly build up over time. Right. Um, so tiny little tweaks here and there that just add up. Tiny little I mean, tweaks. Tiny little tweets. I don't know. I, I think you're going to see touring awards that will get awarded for... Recently, there was pretty big news, um, and I think we missed it. There was a pseudo-polynomial time algorithm for graph polymorphism. Um, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast. Um, I recognize most of those words, but I'd have to write it down I- and try and unpack it. To graph isomorphism. It oh, okay. So what graph <laughs> isomorphism is, is if you have any sort of graph and i mean graph in the computer science term where you have nodes and vertices so you have like three nodes a b and c and they you can't you can't just say in the computer science sense okay so you you're talking about oh shoot what is a good not computer science analogy 
I, I, I don't know. So you have you have math graphs that are you know plots and lines, lines yeah. on axes. Yes. Uh, computer science starts. You have this idea of kind of graph traversal. And not certain that. Okay. So the idea yeah. of graph traversal is you figure out how do we find all of the things in this data that we're trying to represent. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, you would think about a graph as, you know, if you look at the United States, got all of these states, some of them are connected to each other. Yeah. Um, Illinois is connected to Wisconsin and to Indiana. And so you can say that there is a, there is a node that is Illinois and has these vertices or paths to the, to the surrounding states. And those surrounding states are also nodes. And so if you were going to try and write some sort of, you know, it, it's actually kind of a, uh, an initial thing that you'll, there, there are some algorithms for this, the, the kind of the traveling salesman problem is, how do you try and visit all of those states without repeating yourself? And so this is kind of what you use a graph to model, is you just describe all of these particular things and how they connect to each other. And so that's what, yeah. that's what you mean when you're talking about a graph. In that right. sense. Yeah. And what the graph isomorphism problem is, is that given any two graphs, you're asking, are these two graphs the same? So, you know, does Illinois connect to Indiana and does California not connect to New Hampshire and all, you know, possible combinations. So that make make sure that all, you know, all the states that should be connected are connected and that all states that shouldn't be connected aren't connected. Um, and so it turns out like, the easiest way you can think about doing that is to literally just go check one by one every possible connection and see does it exist and should it exist for both of the graphs. You just treat one graph as the master and then check down the other graph, making sure that every, you know, vertex or connection this, that should this, exist this, does. So this got them their, their Turing Award? No. I Because I was going to say, I just, Alex, I think we might be able to get a Turing Award <laughs> That would have been my no, first no, no, approach no. to solving that problem. Yeah, no, so, so that is, <laughs> is the this, common way to... Is this that, map that of the United States license. the same as this other map of the United States? I'm going to check all no. the states and what all their boundaries are. That would have been my solution. Well, I exactly. think I demand my Turing Award. So that's, that, that's the graph isomorphism, isomorphism problem explained in simple forms. You're just checking to see you know, if one graph is equal to the other. And that's a simple way that you can do that. It's not a very computationally effective way of doing it. It takes quite a long time. In fact, it's a pollen. It's um, an exponential time, um, in that as the number of states in the United States grows, the longer it takes to check that these super United States are not equal to other super United States, <laughs> and an exponential curve. Right. Um, what recently happened at the end of last year, there was a formal proof of a, poly, a pseudo polynomial time algorithm so it wasn't quite polynomial time um but it was a very very close it was approximately polynomial time um it was a proof a mathematical proof that you could solve these graph isomorphism problems quite quickly or a, a fair bit quicker than we had before and i think those are the types of things going forward that will win turing awards is not necessarily these revisions in like how the Intel CPU architecture works or a slight compiler increase. Um, but it's going to be these more profound theory works um, that will be receiving Turing awards. I, I, I should, 
I want to look up the uh, list of Turing Award winners now. Should have done that. Huh? Award. Yeah, I don't know. Turing Awards are cool. Um, but I don't understand most of why people have received them, if I'm being perfectly honest. Well, see, this is my point. Of... I mean, I think it's also, computer science is a particularly weird field just because there is probably, I would say, more of a schism between the academic and the, I don't know what the word is, real programmers, maybe? <laughs> industry? Industry. <laughs> industry is probably the word you're no, Not even there. necessarily industry, though, because there are plenty of people that are very, very smart and uh, very, very smart programs that are not industry implies industry has context around in, industry implies like enterprise software solutions <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i guess business no no not even that because i wouldn't consider uh richard stallman to be an industry or a business programmer okay <laughs> yeah I, the, well, there's the math and there's the practical application of the math. Well, I, yes. I mean, there's the, I guess, if I had to say something, I'd probably say there's the, the academic approach to computer science and there's the pragmatic approach to computer science. Okay. Um, the, the, only, yeah. the only reason I hesitate to do that is because I think that it <laughs> implies that academia is not practical in any way. <laughs> like, if I, by making that distinction, <laughs> it's perhaps unfair to the academics. Yeah, um, but I think that it's interesting that there is such a split that things like the ACM, are, I, w- I would say, are even unknown to a very large number of software developers and, and are irrelevant yeah. to most of them. So, I mean, the real reason I, I know a lot about, like, I know what the graph isomorphism problem is off the top of my head, um, is that a while back I learned of this little thing called the Millennium Prize, which is a set of seven problems that if you solve them, uh, any one of them, they're all worth $1 million. So um, in, in 980-some years... <laughs> yes, exa- no, it, it, I, it was termed the Millennium Prize because it was at the turn of the millennium uh, back in 2000, around 2000, that decided that here are seven problems that we want solutions to. Here's a million dollars for each of them. Mm-hmm. Whoever solves it gets this million bucks. Um, and one of them is this problem known as P equals NP, um, or P versus NP. And so I spent quite a lot of time, and I actually went and I took a class at my university, specifically because I was very interested in trying to win this Millennium Prize, um, <laughs> which it, it's this, as we were talking momentarily ago about the uh, graph isomorphism problem, though that solving that is an exponential algorithm. So, you know, it's two to the N or whatever um, it may actually be because um, it takes an exponential amount of time to prove if those two graphs are equivalent to each other. Mm-hmm. However, there are other classes of problems um, that can run in polynomial time. Um, and a polynomial is just from like math class in high school, you know, uh, 2x <laughs> squared plus 5x <laughs> minus 5. And that, that, that would classify um, a polynomial runtime of an application. What is <laughs> Kevin laughing about? I'm sorry. The translating of, of complicated things into 
you know, like math class, like the polynomial, like, because that's a word that people also use all the time now. Like, we're just, like, we're using obscure I mean, it's things, ta- but explaining them in probably equally obscure things. I would imagine, my, no, like, I'm, if I went home and I asked, my mom would probably know what a polynomial was. I don't think my dad would. I, like, I'm sure they'd know the term. I like they'd recognize the term, but they'd have to go like, "Wait, what was that again?" I don't, I don't, I don't, it hasn't been relevant. I could be I, that could be completely unfair, <laughs> but I think for many parents that would probably be true. Maybe my my <laughs> I'm going to say that my viewpoint is probably biased. <laughs> well, um, I mean, everybody's I mean, viewpoint is biased. That's why we yeah, get one. No, because everyone in my family um, would know what a polynomial is, uh, except perhaps my grandfather. I mean, my parents are teachers. My grandmother's a teacher, uh, and my other grandmother is quite a smart lady. So, I'm fairly certain that they they I know that everyone in my immediate family mm. would be able to. How, how do you explain a polynomial <laughs> then from a more subjective place? I, I think I, don't, I, I would just simplify it. Simplify it even more. There are some problems that become really, really, really hard to solve as the, the, for which figuring out the solution takes a ridiculously long time as the problem gets harder. And then there's some problems for which the time that it takes to figure out becomes pretty much infinite as the problem gets harder. Yeah. Okay. Granted, um, yes, I'm vastly oversimplifying more than you had. I'm sure that that that, that irks you a little bit because i've i've <laughs> no no it's it's interesting it's just at what point does the oversimplification make the statement worthless i guess now we're getting to richard Feynman territory <laughs> yeah um, no i refuse to give you an analogy because an analogy is not true <laughs> right i mean there can be some truth you know extracted from an analogy but Okay. Anyway, this what, is the the academics what, versus yeah. the pragmatists. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable yeah. saying, "Here's something for which the example works, given what you want to know about the problem, and totally isn't accurate." If you were to try and use this in other situations, you're like, "No, we should not." Nah, this is you're, you're yeah. the academic here, Alex. I'm I, I am, am for the, right now. I am the cowboy coder, just writing stuff, irritating all those academics and. <laughs> I I want I want to revisit this in like five years and see see you know how much of <laughs> what I think of myself. <laughs> the point is p versus n p is basically that you have two. Well, you actually have a whole bunch of different subclasses of problems, but there are two subclasses of computer problems that you're thinking about, and that's polynomial and non-polynomial p and n p. Um, NP or non-polynomial take a lot longer to complete um, and polynomial are much more easily solved problems. So they complete much quicker. Mm -hmm. And the question is, can you write polynomial solutions or very easily to easy to solve solutions for all of the problems in NP? Um, And therefore all problems in NP are, you know, solvable to some quickly answered you know solution or relatively quickly answered solution um and that that has like huge problems in um or implications for basically everything in computers like 
a lot of encryption is based on NP algorithms that is assumed that it would take you millions and millions of years to try every possible password, yes. you know, if your password is long enough. But if there was a P solution, a polynomial time solution, then these encryption algorithms could be broken much more quickly, you know, to, I, and, and there's certainly different speeds of polynomial. <laughs> um, yeah. So not all, not all polynomial applications can get solved <laughs> at the same time. So it might not be that horrible. The point of the matter is that it's a very important problem whether or not P is in fact equal to NP and it's worth a million dollars. Right. And I, I took a class in this and I've spent a lot of time re reading over different polynomial and non-polynomial algorithms because of it. Because I want to win that million dollars. Um, but it, 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 just, just for reference, it's mostly believed that uh, P does not equal NP. Right. Um, that there are certain problems for which there will never be a particularly fast solution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, imagine, imagine if you were trying to uh, put a puzzle together and all of, and you had to put it together upside down. That, what? That is, no, that's an example of an NP-hard problem is that basically you have to try every combination of puzzle piece with every other combination of puzzle piece if they're all face down and you're trying to oh, put oh, the puzzle oh. together. I thought you were just looking at the puzzle from like oh, no. the picture was upside <laughs> down. I was like, what? No, 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 no. This, I mean, this is kind of how encryption works is that basically you're trying to put a puzzle together and all the puzzle pieces are upside down. Is that okay. basically all that you can do is try every possible combination of every piece with another until it works. And you may get, you know, a fair amount of the way there and go, nope, none of this is going to work. When you flip the picture up, now you have this sort of heuristic approach and you go, well, okay, we can, you know, there are, there, you have a particular algorithm, a particular strategy for solving the problem that you can use that means that it's not going to take you an infinitely long amount of time as the number of puzzle pieces go up. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. And it can't just be solved by tilting your head upside down. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. I should have clarified. Face down is not... Fine. Fine, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just, like, very confused as how that would possibly be an MP problem. But yeah, absolutely. All right, feel free to cut all that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so speaking of AI... Okay. Uh, Alex, go... Okay, you want to play a game of Go, Kevin? I have I played a game of Go maybe once in my life, and I didn't. I couldn't figure it out. I have never played a full game because the AI I was trying to play against kept like getting into an infinite loop and dying. <laughs> did you write this AI, Alex? <laughs> I I did not. I just you know found what would look to be a pretty reputable online site that you can play versus a computer or play against your friends. And I'd get like halfway through a game and it would be like, waiting, waiting. And then like 15 minutes later, the game would time out and end. Well, so this actually very well relates to our subject in that uh, the, game of, the game of chess is a really cool game. I like chess. It is. I'm, I, 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 I fancy myself a connoisseur of the game of chess. Um, chess is a very difficult problem to solve computationally. Because yeah. what you've got to do is try every move and then <laughs> try every opponent's move for all of those moves and then try all of your moves for those moves until you finally go, okay, well, then the game's over, so that move was a good one. And then backtrack and go, okay, well, then the game, you know, uh, you know this, this, this chain allows me to win or allows my opponent to win, therefore it's bad, and you kind of score those all up. 
And if you can build that chain for every beginning move, the game of chess would be considered solved. Yes. And to make it very, very could, boring. <laughs> yeah, because you could predict who was going to win based on whoever got to go first. Yes, and in fact, it's actually kind of an interesting problem in practice because of the way that uh, Grandmaster scores are handled, or, or well, tournament scores are handled at, uh, at the Grandmaster level. Sorry, not at the. Basically, when they're doing uh, when they're doing quick quick bullet matches, um, or a lot of times, basically when they're trying to resolve ties at the end of of these games, that basically, um, you know, you're down to two people, you know, trying to finish off and figure out who's the champion of this particular tournament. And what will yep. often happen, just if they've run out of, you know, they'll they'll go from. Regular chess to like blitz and to to bullet, which is one minute time time increments. And then finally they go, okay, we need to have some sort of system that's not going to take a theoretically infinite amount of time. What'll happen is that one player will play as white, the other person will play as black. If the player playing the black pieces draws, then the player playing the black pieces wins because the assumption is that white has an advantage. Yeah, because it gets to go first. Right, and that getting to go first does constitute a theoretically winning position. If you were ever to figure and, out that chess is theoretically drawn, that would probably change. That basically a draw is a draw, period. Yeah. Um, you know, basically if they, if they tie, then it's not, oh, well, the defending player, this idea of the attacking player and the defending player, it could in fact be the case that if you had perfect knowledge about chess, that the player who goes second automatically wins. Like, that could be true. And that's actually a feature of Go as well. Um, in Go, oddly enough, the black player goes first and the white player goes second. Mm-hmm. But the white player gets what's known as a Komi, um, which is a five or a six and a half point bonus for going second. Mm. So in, in Go, it's assumed that the player going first has the advantage and therefore the player going second has a point bonus. Right. And so this is an assumption. And to be honest, it's... It's probably true, <laughs> but we don't know Maybe because we can't solve these things. And in fact, we haven't solved chess. What we have done with chess quite a while ago is gotten computers good enough that basically they can beat anybody. Yeah. They can't beat a computer and a person together. A computer really? plus a person generally beats out a computer alone, which is pretty so, impressive. So the computer displays, you know, like possible moves or possible good moves, and then the human selects the final move to make. Well, the, it's it's generally more collaborative than that. Is that the basically the human just gets to evaluate the position with the with the engine? So he, okay, he can so in fact say, this look at this, you know, restrict what you're looking at to this this particular chain of moves, or it may just say, yeah, you know, give me the options. Okay, now evaluate this line. This one looks promising, or that sort of thing. Um, generally, okay. a grandmaster plus a computer working together beat a computer on its own. Even a lower-ranked computer plus a person generally do far better than than a computer, which is interesting. Huh. Checkers, on the other hand, has been solved, <laughs> and therefore it's a pointless game to play because if you if you memorize the whole table like a computer has, right, then you can predict who's going to win based on the opening move. Uh, the same is true, of course, with tic tac toe as well. That is yeah. one where humans um, can actually kind of reasonably memorize all of the starting yeah. positions. 
But, you know, the, the actual news that we're getting to here is uh, Go and Google, who perhaps Google, whose name was inspired, in fact, by Go. Little known, little known trivia fact for you. No, wait, was it? I thought it was Google, like the number. Alex, you always ruin my comedic bits. <laughs> wait, how is that a comedic bit? Because it's. I, I thought you were being serious. <laughs> Google has uh, has 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 made a Go computer. That is better than a good player. They haven't tested it against the best player yet, but they have. Played it against at least some good Go players. And the computer has won five games out of five thus far. Um, They also played it against another previously the best known Go AI. um, And it won 199 out of 200 games. Um, So they're pretty sure they have the new best Go AI. And that it is finally better than really good humans. Mm Mm-hmm. Not necessarily definitive. Well, and we should also mention, um, even the best uh, chess engines will sometimes draw against grandmasters. Yeah. Um, They don't often lose, though, right? I think it it occasionally will happen. They'll they'll lose, like, one... I mean, they they don't lose matches. Um, But they'll lose... They'll maybe lose a game. Generally, though, it's, it's, it's draws. Very, very good grandmasters can can often pull off a draw. Uh, yeah, against there's a lot of draws that can happen in chess. Right. I mean, draw is a very common occurrence against good players. I mean, part of the thing is also for you know there are a lot of in particular in chess there are a lot of moves that you can make that basically you know you can go I'm in a winning position but I'm playing against a computer so I'm just going to sacrifice a bunch of of material for a perpetual check that's going to guarantee me a draw yeah. or something stupid like that. <laughs> basically, yeah. you know you can you can force your way into a draw by basically having a boring game <laughs> so the so it it's becoming analysis there was back in the what was it the 70s or 80s deeper deep blue deeper blue i think it was deep blue i'm pretty sure this when is in my it? lifetime really it was before mine 96 wait, wait. alex what okay so i guess i was alive <laughs> what is wrong okay. with you <laughs> i don't know Wow. So d- no, I've... Deep Blue won its first game in 96. Um however, however Kasparov won the tournament that year cuz they they played they played 6 so It wasn't games. until 97. 97 Deep Blue won. Right. Kasparov okay. accused so... IBM of cheating. At this point though, it's pff, hands down, uh, you know, it's it, it's it would never be that close anymore. We should probably explain what Deep Blue is. So back in apparently the mid '90s, yes. IBM built a computer um, they called Deep Blue. I feel bad because I called a, you out for making like references people want to understand. I'm like, what are you talking? Deep Blue. Everybody knows Deep Blue. That was just like a few years ago. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, I I legitimately thought it was in the '80s. So yeah, back in the '90s, IBM built a chess playing computer that they called Deep Blue. Entered in a chess tournament. Um, it lost the first time round, and then in a rematch in '97, um, it was the first computer to ever win a chess tournament against a grandmaster. Um, no, no, no. And oh, sorry. Yes. Well, it's also it didn't just enter a tournament. Like this was a tournament tournament with the world champion of chess. It was a, right, it, was a, it yeah. was a match against. So it's not like I'm just gonna play in the tournament with all the other. 
noobs, like, <laughs> or even no, just yeah, random this was grandmasters. A... This was against Kasparov, which is the, who was the reigning world champion at the time. Yeah. So he was considered to be the best player of chess in the entire world. Yes. Um, Google has announced that in March, its Go AI will be facing the Go world champion. So the player who is considered the best player of Go in the world will be facing off in March of 2016 versus its AI. And we'll see who comes out on top. Alex, so we've, I, we've, gonna... lost, we've lost tic-tac-toe. We've lost checkers. We've lost chess. We may be losing Go. We've lost Jeopardy. I'm pretty sure we're going to lose everything. I'm going to guess the Wheel of Fortune, a computer, would probably be pretty good at that one, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty, I'm, sure pretty I could, certain... I'm pretty sure I could write something that would beat out, <laughs> beat out people at Wheel of Fortune. Like, this is not a hard problem. Yeah. What, what do we have left, Alex? What are, what are humans going to well, be able to do? Like Family Feud? Like, is that... <laughs> I'd, like to, <laughs> I'd like to see a computer beat me at a 50-meter jump. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they can pull that off. A robot could, but not a computer. We're devolving into semantic arguments. I don't <laughs> care. It's the only thing we have left, Kevin. They've taken it all. So, so uh, yes, predictions. But, is the is the Go AI going to going to get oh, yeah. the job done? Yeah. I, I I'm hoping that there's a live stream, Kevin. We should sign up to be the commentators on the live stream. <laughs> We don't know anything about the game. I played at least like three half games before the system crashed. I I, I want the two of us to play a game of Go Cat. I played I played it. people at some point. Yeah, it did not go well. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll re- we'll revisit the game. We should we should try that out. <laughs> I think it would be great. Would you? You should tell us in an iTunes review whether or not we should play. Have a Twitch stream of us playing Go. You, you're just okay. So, like, I mentioned it once, and now this is like your mission. Like, I need to figure out a way to remind people about. I mean, the iTunes. If reviews. I, if I, if I actually wanted iTunes reviews, it's easy enough to just automate that. But <laughs> that's no fun. It'd be equally easy to de-automate that too. What's particularly interesting though is that this is actually using. Um, this is using mainly neural nets, and it's using, in particular, what's called deep learning. Yeah. So the idea of a neural net, which I admittedly don't understand. I mean, I understand neural net. I don't understand deep learning entirely. Well, I'm not certain most people understand what a neural net does. And most people don't understand the neural nets that they make, like how they would work. <laughs> well, so the idea is that basically you hook up a whole bunch of inputs, and you have a whole bunch of outputs, and a very primitive yep. neural net says, all right, we're just going to set up a bunch of connections between these inputs and the outputs. If we have, you know, if we imagine something that just has kind of two layers, and then we say, all right, if you get a signal to this input, you should send a small amount of signal to this output. And that output goes, if I got enough total signal, then I'm going to fire my output. Yep. That's the basis of neural nets. And as you make it more and more complex, you start to add in various layers so that if we have you know our inputs that come in they go to another set that then go i didn't get enough or i did get enough so i'm going to throw out new stuff and they do that over and over through all of these different chains until eventually they get to the outputs and they do stuff and the idea is that you basically just throw throw examples at this neural net so here's what the input is and what the output is and you do that over and over so it figures out what those tuning values are and eventually it just becomes a super genius. What I understand with deep learning is that 
in addition to having those layers, you also let the thing feed back in its output into its input again in some yeah, that fashion. Sounds, that sounds right. Um, it's very complicated. <laughs> you're the academic here. I'm going to have to ask. You're, you, you are uh, of our podcast, Alex. Uh, I'm proud to say that you are the expert. You are a resident expert in neural nets and deep learning. Okay, I will. I should email my, prof- my AI professor. <laughs> Let him know you're, you've made you've made it, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, hey, remember me from last semester? <laughs> well, <Yeah>. guess what? <laughs> I'm in charge of the AI portion of a podcast. <laughs> so I don't. I I genuinely don't know much about deep learning. I know a, a little bit about um, neural networks, and your explanation of that is reasonably correct. Um, in that I don't have anything to really say about it okay uh, but yeah I, I don't i don't understand so by reasonably Google's... correct you mean i didn't say enough that you could refute what i'm saying <laughs> yes correct i didn't say correct. I, I didn't i didn't say enough to explain what's going on but i didn't say quite enough to be wrong <laughs> yeah you, you walked that line very this nicely is a goal. this is this is one of my goals deep learning all i know is that it finds eyes in a lot of things there, Google released this like deep learning like dream thing a while back where you could like have it look at pictures and dream about them. And all it did was just add a whole bunch of eyes everywhere and it was creepy. <laughs> okay. So I think what we can conclude is that deep learning is Cthulhu. Sure. All right. I guess. <laughs> I can't refute that. I don't know enough. About deep learning to refute that. <laughs> but do you know enough about Cthulhu? That's really the... <laughs> I know nothing about Cthulhu. Oh, man. You would... Well, I think I mean, you would enjoy reading Lovecraft. I don't... I'm not a big horror person. I'm not, I'm not a I... horror person. It's it's different. It's it's enjoyable. Okay. I think you'd enjoy it. A Lovecraftian nightmare? Yeah, it's good. I, I don't know if I want to be trapped in an existential nightmare, Kevin. <laughs> Doesn't sound like fun way to spend a Saturday night to me. Alex, you are trapped in an existential nightmare. No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> this is, Vinny the Vole. This is, this I am is, not Vinny the Vole, This is what Kevin. life is, Alex. It is an existential I, nightmare. I, I'm not <laughs> Vinny the Vole. I don't have to do this. <laughs> um, so, Alex, you wrote down Internet for Ants. <laughs> I did. <What> you... <laughs> What are you Did smoking you out the there on the West Coast? And can I have some? <laughs> no, you can't. I mean, actually, you can, um, because it's coming to the East Coast, is what I'm talking about. Um, so, coming to my new next-to-be hometown of Boston, um, where I will be moving in a couple of months, um, is this really cool technology um, that's called Millimeter wireless internet um which is why i called it internet for ants because ants are like millimeters long um but so so i'm excited because right now in boston um even though it's a big like technology center uh there is no option for like gigabit internet i can't like really get fiber i've been been looking at apartments and trying to find like an apartment with like gigabit internet yeah couldn't say that word. I've been looking for apartments, and I couldn't find one with gigabit internet. So, uh, there is something wrong with with housing search engines, Alex. 
Like I, I go on to I go on to like Zillow every so often. I'm like, I'd like to look at like really cheap houses in in areas where houses cost less than like a month's worth of rent. And I look, and they're like, oh, it's got like granite countertops and fancy. I'm like, I don't care. Like, does it have a basement? And what's the bandwidth? Those are the only two things that matter. <laughs> like, I don't care about. Oh, look, it's Why got a walk-up garage. Basement? Like, I don't. Well, because I'm a. Why do you need? I don't. I'm a nerd. I live in basements. This is what I do. <laughs> But if you have a whole house, why do you need to be in the basement? You do. You gotta have a basement, man. Basements are the best. Oh, whatever. The point of the matter is, <laughs> I'm super excited because today a company has announced that they're rolling out um, in Boston as a test drive a millimeter wireless internet that can deliver gigabit speeds via their own radio network that they're going to set up. Um, and so it's kind of like a cell phone network, except the frequency of the transmissions are much higher and therefore that the transmission rate can is much higher. Um, the article doesn't mention them actually launching this thing, that they unveiled it as, yeah. a, as a technology. Just start, but... It will start beta testing its network around Boston. This, oh, this summer. okay. And I signed up and I plugged in the zip code where I'm going to be living um, or want to live. See, this seems interesting and... to me because they're, it, it also says that they're operating in a currently unlicensed wireless band, which to me says... Yeah. The FCC has not said, yes, you can do any of this yet. <laughs> These, those unlicensed bands are reserved by the FCC that anyone can do things in that band. So you're not guaranteed to have no interference, but you can do what you want in that band. That's what unlicensed bands are. Huh. Um, okay. Which is why I think part of why they're just rolling it out as a trial, I think they'll probably try to license a chunk of that band for themselves so that they can guarantee non-interference. Anyway, it's a very strong likelihood that around the time I'll be moving in, there this gigabit wireless thing will start rolling out, and I'll get to have gigabit I- internet via millimeter wireless signal, and it'll be great. You just stick this, like, I don't know, it, it looks like, oh, I don't know what it even looks like. It's a tube. It's a big cylinder. Mm-hmm. You stick this cylinder in your window, and it picks up the signals. Um, their broadcast towers work... Um, in over a two kilometer radius. So you can cover a good bit of downtown Boston with only a few towers. Um, I did the math because I was curious to see how likely it would be for me to live in an area that would get coverage. Um, and it turns out to cover a fairly high population of Boston requires a very little number of antennas um, mm. when they have two, mil- two kilometer ranges on them. So I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that I might actually have gigabit internet now. Because I was getting a little depressed that I might be stuck with like half a gigabit or something. <laughs> well, I have to say, this is, I think, the first podcast where you've not cut out. So I'm excited because maybe I'll get fast internet. Faster internet is, and, is, yeah. And like it wouldn't go out when the power goes out. Because well, unless like the power <laughs> of the transmitter did. Right. I found that there are diminishing returns to super fast internet after a certain point. Yeah. I suppose. Um I, I what I really want, and I'm a little ups- I'm a little worried by this to be honest, is that the upload speed of this this thing mm-hmm. won't be that fast. Like, yeah, it may give you a gigabit downlink, but you'll only get like three megabits uplink because <laughs> right. it's this little wireless transmitter. That 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 has me a little worried, and would be you know a significant kill for that because right now, um, like yeah, I mean I would love I to have know. a gigabit up and. I'd probably be fine with like 20 meg down. 
the thing is that yeah, I, think I, I understand like a lot of there are obviously a lot of people still torrenting or 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 legitimately purchasing stuff and downloading very large files. I'm not one of them. Um, occasionally, I watch stuff on Netflix, but even then, I'm not particularly bothered if it's if it's not the best quality. Um, I'm perfectly happy with low bitrate, and so much stuff is cacheable now. Yeah, that having a having an immediate download speed is not hugely critical for me. Um, the the big the oh. big bottleneck for me is just I want to be able to upload very large video files. <laughs> Yeah, you know, in a in a reasonable time frame, and that and it tend, at least in the U.S. it tends to be the case that you do not get upload speed. I would personally want at least thirty on the downside. I mean, if I could have a symmetric like fifty fifty, mm-hmm. um, it would probably suffice for just me. I probably won't be living alone in Boston though, so I'd mm. like you know fifty fifty times the number of residents in the household, <laughs> given the type of people that I would most likely be living with, right? Um. So, you know, somewhere in the hundreds would be perhaps ideal. And that's that's easy enough to come by. If 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 we if we continue to have really bad upload and download, then it will encourage people to continue to develop better encoding for things. I guess we already is, have H265. It's not in not in practice though. Yeah, and, the, and there are so many licensing issues with it. That I don't know what's ever gonna like. Yes, Netflix will eventually be able to completely leverage it, but it's I don't know. Okay, so it's not a tech problem then; it's a legal problem, is what you're saying. For the most part, yeah. As it probably it probably means that someone else is gonna have to come up with some other codec that is as good. At which point they'll go fine. Let's make H.265 a new public standard. <sighs> okay, well, fine. What about VP8? What's up with VP8? I have no idea. I know it's owned by Google. And it'll probably come along with VP9 because VP7 was the older version. And I think there was a VP6. I don't remember. I don't, know. I, I don't even remember our first vice president. I mean, Adams, wasn't it? VP1? <laughs> no, it was Washington. It was Washington and Washington in the beginning. <laughs> you got a unanimous vote, so they just stuck them in both offices. 